for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Hello and welcome to this special edition of BizTalk, Green Development, a Shared Future. I'm Guanxin in Beijing. Today's discussion will focus on two recently released reports by the Asian Development Bank, Asia in a Global Transition to Net Zero, and Asian Economic Integration Report. These reports delve into crucial topics that are of paramount importance for our region and world today. Inspired by these two reports, we aim to explore pathways towards a greener, more prosperous future for developing Asia by emphasizing both the urgency of carbon neutrality and the power of regional partnerships. We're privileged to have two distinguished guests with us, Mr. Albo Park, Chief Economist from Asian Development Bank. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. And Professor He Ping, Deputy Dean of the School of Economics and Management at Tsinghua University. It's great to have you with us again. Thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. So to kickstart the conversation, let's turn to Mr. Park for an overview of the key findings of the report and shed light on the global transition to net zero and in the case of Asia. Well, what we do in our report uh, is to try to look at different scenarios about how Asia would be affected by the transition to net zero. One of the important findings is that an efficient, globally coordinated transition to net zero is definitely in Asia's interests, mm. with the benefits outweighing the cost by something like five times. Mm. Another important finding is that the earlier we can reach net zero, the greater the benefits and the lower the cost. Mm. A third finding is that we think there's still quite a lot of scope to expand carbon uh, pricing, uh, to adjust uh, subsidies, to uh, implement regulations, and to leverage private financing, all to support this really necessary transition uh, to a greener world. Mm -hmm. And finally, we really warn that governments need to pay quite a lot of attention to making sure that there's a just transition, meaning that people who will be adversely affected by the transition to net zero are, are protected by government policy. Mm -hmm. uh, those are, are very important pathways towards a net zero future. So Professor Ko, what is your observation of China's transition to net zero uh, emissions and what is your impression of the report? I agree with Mr. Park that we need a, a, at least a regional collaboration to achieve the uh, net zero goal. Mm -hmm. And in China, I think since President Xi Jinping bring up to the uh, dual carbon objectives, and I think uh, uh, the whole society in China has made a lot of efforts towards uh, these two goals, yeah. uh, including uh, making efforts to reduce the carbon re uh, emission from uh, manufacturing industry, also trying to uh, build a market uh, for carbon trading, and also a lot of banks uh, promote products in green finance, uh, et cetera. I think we're, we're, we're moving, at least, mm. at this stage. Mm. So Mr. Park, what is your observation of China's transition during your trip here? Well, I've been really impressed, uh, you know, as uh, Dr. He said, about all of the efforts that China is making. Uh, it's really important for the world, the faster transition, the investment in renewable energy that has uh, really been at a fast pace. And I guess our message from the report is this is exactly what needs to be done, and if anything, accelerated as mm -hmm. much as possible. Mm -hmm. One of the real challenges I think that China will have is shifting away from coal 
to renewables because the economy continues to grow and there's enormous energy demand. And there's a, and now greater concern about energy security and food security. And despite all of these challenges, I think it's very important to keep moving in a very uh, aggressive way to uh, move as quickly as we can uh, to change behavior and to shift the energy mix towards renewables. And you mentioned earlier that the benefits of a global net zero approach would be five times the cost of mitigation in Asia. So could you help us understand how those benefits were calculated? Well, there's two types of benefits. One is a direct benefit from avoiding the economic costs of higher temperatures. And, you know, the world has made a lot of progress in understanding the nature of these damages. Um, and in the report, uh, we... Uh, we use a model which is quite sophisticated to account for these different uh, aspects. So, for example, um, we know that rising temperatures will affect the productivity of agriculture. It's going to create sea rise, which mm -hmm. is going to uh, put a lot of pressure on coastal regions in China. It would affect flooding in general. We know more natural disasters, which damage infrastructure and economy. Uh, it also, higher temperatures uh, for manual labor, it really reduces the labor productivity if you're working out there in the heat. And then the cost of cooling in the summer at really high temperatures, obviously much greater than before. So all of these add up and um, add up to quite a significant effect. Uh, we estimate that for Asia as a region, by the end of the century, all of these negative factors would equal about 24% of GDP. Wow. Uh, and so that's what we need to avoid, and thus those are the benefits of avoiding mm -hmm. those costs. The second benefit is the co-benefit of reduced air pollution uh, if emissions are, if, if we shift uh, sharply away from fossil fuel powered. And uh, we estimate that in the region as a whole, we could be saving 300,000 lives a year. And uh, this benefit is especially important in countries with a lot of densely populated cities like China. And the good thing about the co-benefits of better health because of reduced air pollution is that we get those benefits much earlier. Whereas the benefits of avoiding those high costs of climate change occur later because uh, it gets worse and worse as the carbon accumulates in the atmosphere. Yeah. So, Professor Ho, considering all those benefits, uh, what do you think about Chinese uh, investment in the green economy? Do you think the government should do more to mobilize the private sector to invest more in the green sector? Indeed, actually. I think uh, right now the government has done a lot of things to uh, make things moving. But I think there's couple of key issues we need to resolve. For example, we need to uh, build a comprehensive carbon trading market with balanced demand and supply. To achieve that, we need to allocate a carbon quota, emission quota, uh, appropriately across different firms, across different industries, across different regions in a scientific way. But we haven't done that. And we need to at least build a model to make uh, the government to able to uh, allocate those quota uh, uh, efficiently and scientifically. Then, based on that, it will create an incentive for firms to trade those quota. After they have a balanced demand supply, then mm. the, price, uh, the carbon will be priced uh, in the market. In that way, and those firms with the mo most efficient production will be able to pay the highest price for those quota. And then, the efficiency can be can be achieved. Mm -hmm. And then we need to move from there to price other financial products in, 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 in like carbon 
uh, market, for example, like uh, green loans, green debt, and all the, those uh, financial products can be priced accordingly if you have an efficient carbon trading market, etc. And um, other than that, for example, the carbon tax will also need to impose appropriately. Mm. Right now, probably we do that very in a rough way and without the uh, right uh, positioning of carbon tax in, in, compar in comparison with uh, carbon trading market, etc. We need a comprehensive system to achieve those goals. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. For future economic trends, this is BizTalk. So the carbon pricing plays a very uh, fundamental role in uh, building all uh, the overall system. Mm -hmm. So well, we know that ADB report also emphasized on the importance of carbon pricing. What obstacle do you see for Asian countries to uh, implement uh, carbon pricing and perhaps building a unified carbon market? There's two ways to do carbon prices. You know, you can do carbon taxation or you can have an emissions trading system, which is what China has emphasized for its power sector so far. The problem with the carbon taxes, like any taxes, they're unpopular. They tend to be, even though they're actually more straightforward to implement. And so one way to maybe perhaps convince uh, citizens to support a carbon tax is if the use of those tax revenues are very transparent and people really see the value of how those funds are being used, perhaps to protect adversely affected people or to be reinvested into uh, making the transition to a greener economy even uh, more successful. Most countries tend to choose the emissions trading system because it's not a tax. They can allocate quotas yeah. to different companies and then allow a market to emerge. So the price mm -hmm. emerges kind of as by a market. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of that also is that if you have a trading system with a total uh, quota, then by adjusting the quota, you can really directly control the amount of emissions without any uncertainty. With a tax, you're not really sure what the behavior is going to be and what the final carbon output would be. But emission stating systems also require quite a lot of work. And yeah. I, I think in China, they started with the power sector because this is where most of the emissions occur. And there is an intention, I think, to extend to other sectors, but they need to prepare for that uh, system by making sure they have good data and information from firms. So there are a lot of these issues. You need to know how much uh, carbon is being produced in different 
sectors by different firms. There's millions of there's many more firms in industry than there are in the power sector. So that's also quite a big task that needs to be accomplished before you uh, can do this, implement this type of uh, trading system effectively. Hmm. But what's the possibility of establishing a unified uh, carbon market for Asia and perhaps uh, with the other countries in the world? Well, I think that's what we really need to do. One of the uh, main uh, points of our report is that coordination, and in, in our modeling, we kind of think of coordination as there being a global carbon price. So everyone is responding to the same uh, market signal for what the value is or the cost it's is of coal. It's a much bigger market, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, in order for there to be a international carbon market, the individual economies need to set up their own markets first mm -hmm. and then integrate them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge benefit, though, because um, if each country just tries to meet their own target by themselves, some countries will have a much bigger burden than other countries, depending on what their pledges have been. Mm -hmm. It's much better to think in the whole world or in the whole region which uh, economies can reduce carbon at lowest cost. Yeah. And then for economies, which actually probably include China, where it's actually very costly to keep reducing carbon after they've already done so much, then they can actually buy offsets and pay other countries mm -hmm to reduce carbon towards meeting their own obligations. And in this way, the whole transition to net zero becomes much more efficient. Hmm. Indeed. Uh, Professor Ho, what, what, in your opinion, how to kickstart the process to unify the carbon pricing because you know the price in different countries is very different? And I think it's a, it's a quite difficult task because, uh, for example, if you unify the carbon price uh, globally, they will probably give different uh, advantages based on their uh, green technology. For example, if Europe started a carbon technology, uh, reduction technology earlier, they are doing very well. And then if you unify the price, they will definitely bring them uh, some uh, comparative advantage in production uh, based uh, with uh, each unit of a carbon emission. It will produce more. Mm -hmm. Then it will gain higher, a better advantage in trading. So I think before we can achieve the global price in carbon, we probably need to allocate carbon emission quota across country in a, in a scientific way and based on different countries' development stage. Like, for example, some developing country, they are kind of uh, have a lower technology, a, a worse technology in carbon reduction. And they are in the early stage of development. They probably, we should probably allow them to have a higher emission quota. That will make sure when they compete with all the country across, uh, in the world, they will not be in a, a very bad situation. Yeah. And there also raised a question of climate justice. Uh, Mr. Park, in your opinion, how to uh, share the responsibilities among different countries? Uh, for Asia, for example, uh, many countries have differing economic circumstances and they're disproportionately affected by climate change. It's very challenging and, uh, you know, the Paris Agreement kind of shied away from making uh, judgments about what the right burden sharing should be in terms of fairness. Mm -hmm. uh, but Dr. Ho is right. Uh, to really make progress in global coordination, I think we need to have that conversation at some point. Mm -hmm. So one thing we do in our modeling is we assume that uh, we move gradually to a uh, allocation system where each country is given a quota that's based on the same per capita emissions. 
so which has an element of fairness. It doesn't correct for historical mm. burden, but yeah. at least in terms of current emissions. And if you had a system like that, just as an example, then uh, poor countries that are emitting very low amounts per capita actually will be well below their quota. And so they can probably sell a lot of their quota to other countries and so be paid yeah. for the fact that they're doing much less. And, and if they are able to reduce their emissions efficiently, they would be compensated for that. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a natural mechanism for richer countries to be paying for the carbon reductions uh, if it's efficient uh, in poorer countries. But you know, we know that it's hard to get political agreement right. on how much the, the North has made commitments to finance carbon reduction in the South. There's been some difficulty getting those those commitments to actually being met, and I think if in, in this kind of a global scheme, the amounts of uh, money we're talking about it will be much greater. So, it will take a critical mass of countries to agree on some kind of principles and to meet. And although it's hard, I think we should start having those discussions at some point. Mm -hmm. soon. Indeed, Professor Hora, China emphasized on its need to develop, and that requires a certain amount of carbon uh, emissions because uh, historically, industrializations are responsible for more uh, carbon emissions. What is your take on this? Actually, if we build up such a global system for carbon trading, it will possibly create a self-correction mechanism that making the rich country compensate poor country who uh, has a lower emission. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I personally think we should, uh, instead of have a global market, we should probably have a regional market mm. with countries uh, at different stage and will pull together and setting up a similar goal of carbon emission. Then little by little, when we getting closer to each other, we start trading with the other regions. Yeah. For example, China possibly, because there are a lot of developing countries around China, I think China possibly could collaborate with Asian countries, which are at a very similar stage of development and with a similar demand for growth. And mm. uh, if we start to collaborate with each other, then we can trade carbon with, with uh, quota with each other. Mm. Then after we develop to a certain stage, we can merge with the rest of the world. Also, they will make the negotiation relatively easier. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. For future economic trends, this is BizTalk. A large amount of carbon emissions is related to uh, energy uh, sector. So, uh, Ms. Park, uh, in the report, it recommends uh, the rapid uh, trans transmission from coal and other fossil fuels to renewable energies. In your opinion, what are the main obstacles in implementing this transition in developing Asia? Well, I think the fundamental challenge is that a lot of countries in Asia, they have plentiful coal deposits. So it's the, it has been in the past uh, the obvious way to provide energy. 
but one thing that makes it more feasible now than before to shift quickly to renewables is the fact that the price of renewables has come down dramatically and continues mm -hmm. to go down. Uh, so it can be cost effective to switch to renewables. There are still other barriers, though, for to scale up quickly. You know, one is that uh, solar and wind energy provide intermittent energy. It's not continuous. And so you need to have very well-developed grid systems and, and uh, storage systems for energy and metered pricing where prices adjust with the time of the day depending on the energy. So this uh, has a greater kind of infrastructure need to support um, bringing on renewables. And even in the best case, there may be a limit to the share of the energy that can come from renewables and have a stable supply that is really meeting the constant demand for energy um, from, for different uses. So that's a challenge. Uh, there's also, for some countries in the region uh, that really rely on foreign companies to come in and help build uh, uh, renewable energy plants, uh, if there are restrictions on foreign direct investment, there are regulatory barriers uh, right now that probably uh, need to be fixed. And there's a lot of uh, price uncertainty for renewable energy companies because uh, most electricity markets, the prices are very regulated. And so what many governments do is they provide pricing guarantees for many years to help overcome this uh, price uncertainty problem to overcome the uncertainty of being able to sell it to the grid. I think one point you raised is the uh, trade barriers the free uh, flow of capital and investment is key, but we're, it seems we're seeing more um, trade barriers in the green technology as well, is the part. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because it is understandable. Uh, and the U.S. has imposed countervailing duties on China's solar panel imports on the argument that that production has been uh, unfairly subsidized and so to protect their own renewable uh, uh, producers, they want to do this. But there's also some so, some kind of local content requirements that s seem to make it very hard. Like, for instance, electric vehicles sales uh, to the U.S. Are, are hard if you're not producing it in the U.S. And, you know, other countries have protectionist measures as well. It's costly to the countries to impose it because they reduce the cost of a very cheap renewable uh, uh, technologies. Mm. In some ways, the fact that China has been able to produce solar panels at such a cheap price is a benefit for the whole world, right? If you're just yeah. importing it and using it to mm. accelerate the green transition. Mm. But this is, you know, for the countries that want to develop their sectors, there is this trade-off that they face. So yeah, they, they try to, yeah. uh, tr uh, and, and, and I think that that is understandable to mm. a large extent. Uh, so let's talk a bit more about the energy structure in China. Professor Ho, what is your observation of China's energy transition? How does it align with other goals, such as energy security, economic development? Mm. Over the past 10 years, China has achieved an average of 6% of growth, but energy growth is on average at 3%. So actually, the, our energy usage grows much slower than mm. the GDP growth. It looks like we China is trying to, making a lot of efforts, trying to find a way to achieve uh, both goals at the same time, the economic development goal as well as the energy reduction goal. And it's not, it looks kind of successful. But uh, again, as Mr. Park pointed out, pointed out earlier, that uh, these two goals might not be conflict with each other because mm -hmm. with carbon emission, 
uh, there's a huge cost in the long run. For example, the, sea, the health of people the health, come first. Yeah, the, the productivity of human and the river flooding, etc. Those costs. Yeah. So, if we do actually make efforts uh, uh, in the short run, and actually we can avoid higher costs in the future. So these two goals might not be necessarily conflict each other. So we can certainly uh, make a lot of efforts to uh, reconcile these two uh, two objectives. At the same time, I think we, I do think making a lot of investment in green technology as well as some infrastructure, they create new job opportunities. Mm. So that will actually make us produce more. Yeah. So the number will not go down necessarily. So, Ms. Park, you talked about the, uh, some of the ADB's approach in helping the uh, financing some carbon reduction activities. So, help us understand how large is the gap in funding this transition for developing Asia, and what measures can be taken to further bridge the gap of financing. Well, we estimate that the investment in, in power sector per year in developing Asia is about five hundred billion dollars, and that in an aggressive, accelerated transition to net zero, the investment needs would go up to something like $700 billion, so an additional $200 billion. So that's quite a lot of additional financing uh, that's needed. And ADB is trying to commit more of its own resources, not nearly that enough, uh, but we've made a, a commitment to spend up to $100 billion towards uh, climate change, both mitigation and adaptation uh, from the period 2019 to 2030. And we're trying to use some of that finance to leverage private sector finance, like in the example I gave earlier, to make it go farther. But we know that uh, a lot of the financing is going to have to come from many different sources, um, especially from the private sector. Right. Definitely. So, uh, Professor Ho, what is your observation of China's green financing? We know last year China issued the most green bonds in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the priorities for its future development? I think the future is still we need to build a market for pricing these bonds. Uh, if we don't have an efficient carbon pricing market, the green bond we issued is not market priced. Mm. For example, a lot of banks, they offer green uh, loans. Uh, all firms issue green bonds. They need to uh, release some information about their green technology investment or certain information on the carbon reduction in their production process. If they meet certain standards, they will be offered these loans or they can issue these bonds with certain interest rate cut. So, but this interest rate cut is not market-based pricing. Yeah, it's very much by like uh, government uh, pricing. Yeah, you need to cut 0.5 percentage point. But how these 0.5 percentage point are coming from, we don't know. So it's not market priced. Yeah. In the future, if we build a market-based carbon trading system, then these bonds can be traded in the market uh, based on the carbon price. And this interest cut will be based, that the interest margin generated by green investment will actually be priced in the financial market as well. Well, thank you so much for both of you. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. And Albert Park, Chief Economist of Asian Development Bank, thank you, and Professor He Ping from Tsinghua University. So that's all for this special edition of Biz Talk. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.